Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, a very special infectious disease episode of Sunday Morning Matinee. We're going to cycle back to the Edgar Wright 2004 zombie comedy, Shaun of the Dead. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, currently lathered in a large layer of Purell, Matt. So say we all, Adam. So say we all. <laughs> Today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam how Shaun of the Dead might help us think about life in church and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Shaun of the Dead might help us understand the lectionary passages for the fourth Sunday in Lent, March 22nd. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So, Adam... This is not the show we had planned to do today. No, it's not. We had planned to talk about Bond, James Bond, in anticipation of the release of the next film in the Bond franchise, No Time to Die, in just a few weeks. But late last week, MGM announced that it was pushing the release of No Time to Die to Thanksgiving in response at least partially to the global coronavirus scare, which has at the very least squashed the market for going to public places like movie theaters and some major Chinese markets, and may very well do the same in the States by time... The original release date comes up in April. So, we're going to talk about Bond, but we'll do it in the fall, closer to the new date. Instead, today, out of respect for pandemics, we're going to go revisit... A deep the... respect. I yeah. have a lot of respect, man. A lot of respect. We're, we're going to go revisit the zombie obsession of the mid-late 2000s and hang out with Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead. Zombies had always been around in popular discourse since George Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead, when Romero lifted them out of Haitian folklore as a sort of allegory for American racial panic. But something happened in the 2000s that really launched zombies into the mainstream, with Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later, and Max Brooks's World War Z, and of course the ascendancy later in the decade of the AMC drama The Walking Dead. All of these play zombieism on a broadly dramatic, post-apocalyptic scale. Part of the thrill of 28 Days Later is just watching Cillian Murphy wander around a totally abandoned London. Sandwiched in the middle of all of this is, in some ways, a smaller movie, which is Edgar Wright's breakout hit, Shaun of the Dead, which is, of all things, a zombie comedy. A zombie relationship drama? A zombie <laughs> coming-of-age story? A zombie quarter-life crisis? Sean is a sort of underachieving 29-year-old Londoner with little sense of direction. His girlfriend Liz breaks up with him because he can't quite get his life together. He's a bit held back by his friendship with Ed, a stereotype of a man-child whose best talent is a gorilla impersonation. And then the zombie outbreak comes, and Sean discovers his true calling, which is shepherding people through the apocalypse. Adam... I hadn't seen this movie in a long time, and I was pleasantly surprised to go back and find it just incredibly tight and incredibly rich. But I'm curious about you. What was it like to revisit? And did you find anything in there that can help us think about the church in the world? 
I, I think it's worth repeating that zombies, at least from their very inception, have always been allegory for something else. And in this movie, it's kind of no difference. Um, but I want to hear what you think the zombie is an allegory to, because what you have with a zombie is this um, a sort of loss of identity. The zombies themselves, um, while they might look different from each other, effectively are driven by some just like insatiable appetite. And so that there is a loss of personality, a loss of um, uh, of identity in the midst of this. And what struck me this time watching Shaun of the Dead, which I, I remember watching this movie when it first came out and being like, who is Edgar Wright? Right. Because this movie is amazing. Yeah. Uh, because it it's still pretty fresh, even though it, it kind of moves in this fast paced cutting and um, it still has a lot of life in it. I think the performances of Simon Pegg and Nick Frostford are really, really well done. Uh, and it seems like Edgar Wright has total control on the movie, on what he wants to say. And like you said, it's super tight. It's, you know, I think it's 94 minutes and you're in and out. It doesn't try to be more than it is, but it does have some things to say. And I think what what it's saying, at least this time as I watched it, is I was more interested in in Sean's relationship between his two roommates than the romantic comedy side. And we can talk about whether the romantic comedy side is a sort of uh, an appropriate mashup with the zombie genre. But what was really interesting to me is that they're like, Sean is trying to live this life. He's got these two roommates, one Pete, who is eventually a zombie, uh, who is trying to be ambitious, is trying to like grow up, become like a full fledged adult. And uh, and then there's Ed, who just sits on the couch, deals a little weed and uh, and doesn't pay rent. I think what Wright is trying to say in both of these is that they're both kind of zombies, right? Uh, that there is this sort of like commercial ambition where someone gets up, does the same thing every day is like totally uh, driven by their appetite. Uh, doesn't matter what they're doing. They will eat everything. They will um, consume, consume, consume at the expense of everybody else in order that they might live. Similarly, Ed is doing the same thing, but just in the slacker version. And in between is Sean, who is trying to find some measure of purpose, identity, and I think love in the world. And, and as he's doing it, he seems to be the only one who actually has like a sense of relationship that like binds him to the world. And I think the the relationship for Sean is between his Liz, his his girlfriend who breaks up with him, but also with his mother, which I found like strangely compelling in this mm -hmm. movie in a way that I had forgotten. Yeah. Which is he he really loves his mom as well. And those relationships are in some ways the thing that prevents him from becoming the zombie that either Nick or Pete are already when the movie opens. I mean, so as you watched it, I mean, how did zombieism as a sort of trope for talking about the modern world strike you? Is it still relevant? This movie came out in 2004. I mean, it's almost 16 years old. So what about you? Does it still play for you? It does still play for me. I think the symbolism of zombieism still has a lot of resonance. I think we probably OD'd on them a little bit uh, <laughs> by the early 2010s. And so the, the reason we're not seeing as many of them now, I think, has less to do with um, a kind of failure of relevance and more to do with just like a saturation of market. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, one of the one of my favorite quotes about zombieism comes from a, a an article in the, in the Atlantic by a critic named James Parker, who was writing in 2011, right around the peak of Walking Dead, and he's trying to sum up like what is happening, what is this groundswell of zombieism happening in culture, and he talks about the the way in which the zombie gets plucked out of Haitian folklore and kind of mm. and, and then kind of set adrift into American popular consciousness and the quote says that quote unquote severed thus from his heritage sent freewheeling into postmodernity with nothing to say on his own behalf because he can't talk because he's a zombie our hero would seem to be in a position of great semiotic vulnerability unquote which is to say like I think the zombie is a sort of perfect postmodern symbol because you can put anything on top of it. Yeah. Because it, it can't speak for itself. And so therefore it can mean it's, it becomes a kind of sociological Rorschach test where you can just kind of put whatever interpretation you want and contextualize it however you want. So Romero famously makes Sign of the Living Dead at the peak of kind of the, the, the 60s, uh, 68 yeah and 68 the civil rights movement and the aftermath of civil rights and then he makes dawn of the dead which is my favorite of his um in the late 70s which is clearly now no longer really specifically about uh, racial anxiety but as a critique of consumer culture can that movie all the, the zombies go to the spots that are most familiar to them and so the entire movie takes place in a mall right and the, and so <laughs> and it becomes a the, the very easy joke of it is we're all kind of zombies. We all go to the mall and shop mindlessly. And that's, and, and because of the, the flexibility of the symbol, you can put it in all these different places and it keeps being resonant. Um, because I think what it's really getting it underneath is, um, I think what these movies are really doing underneath is trying to find what that ineffable thing is that calls us into something more than just our our base instincts and our material nature Hmm. if the zombie is 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 human in all of the in all of the biological scientific material evaluations of human right with a few exceptions i mean you can shoot him in the chest and it doesn't do anything i mean but yeah okay but but it looks and acts like what a, a, a biologist would describe as a human or it, some cheeky synthesis thereof. It's 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 kind of it's it's Darwin on steroids, right? That this is what you get if you would if you derive humanity from a very reductive material position. And what we're trying to say as a culture is no, we have to be something more than that. Mm-hmm. And, and so then for right, and I think this movie is great in many spots, but just in that opening 10 minutes where you see those sequences of like the folks on the bus, just kind of with all their heads drooping to the side, um, and, and because you can't tell the difference between the zombies and the people who are commuting to their jobs. There's a scene in all of these movies where at some point the humans who are still fully human have to pass as zombies to get through a crowd of them. Uh, and that is also always the joke too right is that how easy it is to not be able to tell how difficult it is to tell the difference and and so what is it that is that has to be fully human so that you can have something 
worth marking that distinction. And I think you're right that here it is, it is something like love and relationship. And I think this is where the, the, the relationship with Liz and to some extent the relationship with mom becomes really important because it is the thing that calls Sean into some, something bigger than, um, than these two modalities of like zombies sitting on the couch playing video games, zombie going to work for the man. But there's something more. Uh, there has to be. Otherwise, what would be the point? Right. And, and in addition to that, it's also what are those things that take away our, our sort of critical faculties to assess the world and our own lives? Right. I think that there's a sort of um, there's an inability of Sean at the very beginning of the movie to be self-reflective. And he, he feels like he's so unmoored in so many different ways so that he so that a 17 year old sort of dresses him down right. at work, which is an amazing moment yeah. so that he can't, he can't see past his habits and his, and, and these drives. And he, he can't quite understand why he wants to go to the Winchester over and over again. Um, and even though he looks around and realizes that the people in the Winchester are not people to be emulated, no matter what Ed tries to convince him. And, one of the things about a zombie is that it, it lacks self-reflection. It lacks the ability to sort of consider who am I and what do I need in order to be my best self. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the whole scope of this movie is that Sean ultimately comes into his own by, um, through protecting these group of people by like being decisive. But finally, um, considering who he is and considering how, how it is he's supposed to interact with his, with his, the people that he loves, even Ed, you know, who he defends and sticks up for, even though Ed is an idiot. Um, and I, I thought that that was, that was really a sort of smart take on, on this is that the coming of age story is the necessary antidote to the zombieism that sort of, infects our cultures which is let's distract people from ever doing the important self-reflection that they need to do in order to to live a critical life in this world um and that's that i think that is as true as it was in 2004 as it is today um yeah. the thing that i struggle to tolerate in this world is the is a lack of someone thinking about themselves <laughs> Which is a, a different type of self-absorption, I suppose, than the self-absorption that bothers me. But if people are critical of of who they are and what in the world that they live in, I have so I feel like I have a lot of patience when there is a sort of uh, when there are justifications raised or a sort of self-medicating to prevent people from having those self-realizations, that's when I'm so tired. And I think that's maybe why I find this movie satisfying is because that Sean ultimately does come from a place of, um, of being adrift to a place of understanding who he is. Yeah, I think you're right on it. And I think you're right to point out that it's not a coming of age movie in the sense that Ed, that, that Sean has to move from looking like Ed to looking like Pete, right? It's, it, you don't grow up into willingly putting on a tie and going to do your job it's something more and less definable than that because the the folks because pete who just puts on a tie and goes to do his job is also 
is, is also a zombie in his own right. And so that I think what Wright's trying to figure out here is is some further course. And you see that a little bit at the end. That's when, what I was like, going to say. Yeah. Right. Like the, the resolution of this film is not uh, Sean makes upper management somewhere. The resolution of this film is Sean and Liz sit on the couch and go get brunch and um, get beer and come back and watch television. And they seem quite contented and happy, but, and obviously there's a broader picture to that ending, but it's, it's not uh, Sean comes of age into a kind of um, modern modern capitalist version of what adulthood looks yeah, like. Know, it's, right. it's much more complicated. Well, and I think even more complicated by the fact that he then goes plays video games with zombie Ed. Yeah. Which, you know, Ed was a zombie. Ed stays a zombie. And yet I find it quite charming, actually, that part of the maturity of Sean is that he still loves Ed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that that's part of that's part of what a mature adulthood looks like, which is all of us. um all of us have those relationships with people who may be stunted ourselves. We might be that relationship for somebody else. Um, but it's, it's that moment where you can sort of have the individuation to say like, I'm going to love this person and the terms that they're going to need to be loved. And that's not, doesn't have to be everything that I do and I don't have to be them, but there, there is maturity in being able to say like, I'm still going to love this person, even if they're a zombie. <laughs> Uh, and I, I always like that about Ed, Edgar Wright's movies. I mean, he does something very similar in Scott Pilgrim versus the world where like that movie is wild in a lot of ways. And we should probably watch it at some point. But it's the, like the very end boss that Scott Pilgrim has to best in order to sort of finally get the girl is a version of himself. Sure. And then they walk out of I think they're in a bowling alley or something like that. And. They haven't defeated each other. They made friends with each other. And I like that Edgar Wright's movies generally end with you coming to a version of maturity, which involves you making friends with unlikely people. And I, I mean, theologically, I find that actually pretty, pretty rich as well, which is like the reason that you love your enemies is because once you start loving them, they cease to be enemies. <laughs> Right. Like the the idea isn't that you you keep them enemies. It's that like at some point you transform these very difficult things into positive things. And if Ed was holding Sean back. In a lot of movies, Ed would have been left behind or Ed would like his death would have propelled Sean into something. But here Ed gets to stick around, albeit in a zombie zombified form. But I, I appreciate that. I, I think that that's rich. Yeah, and I think it I think it speaks to another piece of this film which I like, which is the um, Liz's enthusiasm about Sean going to hang out with Ed in the shed there at the very end says to me something about the arc that Liz is also on, so that so that she isn't just played as kind of girlfriend who has matured faster and is waiting for her boyfriend to catch up. But she's played as someone, because at the beginning of the movie, she would not have been enthusiastic about Sean blowing her off to go play video games. But at the end, she, she has, she, she has 
changed in her own way as well and has a kind of broader sense of the the value in those complicated relationships uh, that is a little bit less locked into um, into pre-given images than it was earlier. And I think there's something nice and subtle in that. The, the rest of the ending has right. some weird pieces to it, Adam. <laughs> oh, I kind of liked it. I think it's I think it's fascinating. Uh-huh. The like the the various kind of television images of the way in which the the post zombie post zombie outbreak humans have become like workplace chattel and entertainment and reality TV spectacle. Like walk me through that because I found that a little bit disturbing. Well, I yeah, I think it's designed to be because back to this question of the apocalypse and maybe this is where we start talking about theology a little bit is um, do we think that the latter half of the apocalypse will change the world in which we live? Right. Um, Or will it be a sort of (laughs) an obstacle so that we might get back to some approximation of the previous world that happened before in this instance, Z day as they call it, Um, which I think is really important. Like, I think, it's quite astute that if there were something that were truly horrific, like what happened on this day, that the the capitalistic system would find a way to re-employ these things back into the world. And and part of the reason I find this astute is because I listen to the discourse around coronavirus right now, and there are plenty of people who whose first anxiety is the market. You know, like, oh, what's this going to do to the market? What's this going to do to the market? And I, I I read something recently where someone on television said, I wish we could just get those people to have this virus so that the market could write itself. And I'm like, what? Oh, what are these people talking about? Because there is a sort of fealty at its very heart, a loyalty to this capitalism as the unadulterated good in this world. And it doesn't surprise me that after a terrible event, things go back or at least we try to make things go back to the way they were. Um, and we don't learn lessons. And I think that that's a fairly, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a very, if that's a cynical way of looking at the world. I think it's a pretty realistic way of looking at the world that we as humans fail to learn lessons. What about you? I mean, I I, I thought it's quite funny. Like they start using zombies on game shows and things like that. I mean, made sense to me. Yeah, I think it's got a dark edge to it because I think what it's also doing is is kind of making an equivalence between um it, it's not just using zombies in those kind of quote unquote like service level positions like you've got the guy pushing the shopping carts around in the parking lot. I think it also then calls up calls us to ask like how do we 
look at the person in our regular lives who is pushing the carts around the parking yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's dark. And and is that are we recognizing the full humanity in that person, um, or in the 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 folks that are going down the slides in the game shows or whatever it is? Like, are, are we asking ourselves uh, to recognize that person in their fullness? And I I think it's in some ways that is a tonal push for the film. Um, I think it works, but it does feel. It, it, I did feel poked by it in a way that I didn't feel poked by the rest of the movie, which is probably a good thing. But it, it well, it, yeah. But but I think it's designed to contrast with the the fulfillment that Liz and Sean have at the end of the, mo- at yeah, yeah. the, end of the movie, right? Which is, if you're going to poke fun at the people who are trying to find some measure of um, fulfillment in fame or these like strange opportunities to be on TV or. Um, then to contrast that with two people who seem to be quite in love, enjoying a cup of tea, having some brunch, watching the, getting a beer and then going home, um, fits in line with Wright's vision, which is that this is fulfillment, right? Like you can, you can, you can live a good life as long as your relationships um, are there. And I like that. I, I feel like, that that gels with my theology of culture. I mean, with theology of church, though, too, which is like that the community as long it doesn't matter what your building looks like, and it doesn't matter what like your worship sounds like. Can you get a community of people who love each other, who care about each other, who will like show up for each other? That that will ultimately sustain a, a community, especially through hard times, especially through things like a coronavirus where, you know, I don't know about your Sunday on this last Sunday, but like we saw a dip oh, in yeah. attendance. People aren't showing up. No way. Like, um, and I don't blame them. Um, and the people who do were kind of like they felt like kind of proud that they were showing up if as a leader in the church that I serve, if my confidence is in, oh, they're going to hear a great sermon or they're going to hear great music, or they're going to spend a lovely place. Um, this coronavirus thing would s- scare me. But I feel like the thing that I love about my community is that they love each other in community. And they don't get that anywhere else. And they can't find that online. And so we'll weather this as long as we need to weather it. And then when everyone comes back, they'll come back. Because the community is the thing that draws them. And that community, I would, I would say, works best when it reflects the Spirit of God as revealed in Christ. Yeah, so uh, I, I want to come back when we talk about Scripture a little bit and talk a little bit more about church and theology here. But before we do that, can we just geek out a little bit about how good the Don't Stop Me Now sequence is? <laughs> so great. So it's, it's like so such great. a seed of what he will do in Baby Driver, but in, in some ways that movie is a, a little bit over the top. And I feel like it's this is such it's a perfect three minutes of movie making. I had to go back on YouTube and just watch it several times over, just because I, I was so taken by this moment where the the jukebox kicks on in the bar for we don't even really know entirely why. Uh, Queens Don't Stop Me Now starts coming on because it's on random, as Ed keeps telling us. <laughs> and then they like execute this perfectly choreographed pool cue beatdown of the one zombie in the bar. Though they don't seem to be doing any damage to him at no, all. It's I more know, like a but dance. It's beat. <laughs> right. Perfectly on the beat. 
and it's just it's the the visual humor of it is so precise uh, and that feels like a, a just a directorial coming out sequence i i love what it an announcement to the world of like what his vision is going to be and who he's going to be as a filmmaker and so i i listened to a podcast the other day where uh some people were counting down their like top five needle drops in movies hmm. where like where the music cue kicks in and it like kicks off a scene it, which is which is a, a really in many ways a sort of product of modern filmmaking right. starting in like the late 70s it's not really a thing that's happened historically but you know like the copacabana scene or like any pick any of your tarantino movies right. or any of your wes anderson movies where this is a this is like a major part of their filmmaking right. um and i watched this one and i was like this is rad this is amazing and you know what it reminded me most of that i was like and gave me so many fond memories uh wayne's world bohemian rhapsody which is sure where where it was the sort the sort of for introduction to queen that i ever had in that movie and then i was like oh yeah this queen song rocks and it's incredible and it has an infection to it like that that wayne's world scene does and and so there's a nice little overlap there that i was just I was in love with and yeah. I just and I was just grinning the entire time while I watched it. Yeah, that's incredibly well done. All right. Before we move on, we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. One of the best groups of articles we've read in a while in the century has come from this article by Tara Brockman about how a church was returned to an American Indian tribe in Colorado. That article is accompanied by two sidebars by Joe Lynn, Locust Woodcock, and Sky Roosevelt Morris responding as representatives of the Four Winds American Indian Council. So interesting and compelling. We encourage everyone to go and read it. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's talk about preaching. The text for this upcoming lectionary Sunday, the fourth Sunday in Lent, year A, March 22nd. We've got Samuel picking out a new king for Israel among the sons of Jesse and Psalm 23 to go with it. And we've got Jesus with the man born blind in John 9 and a bit of Ephesians on living in the light to go with it. So, Adam, as you look at these texts, what inspires you in connection with Shaun of the Dead? So I'm kind of drawn to, I'm drawn to the Psalm 23 passage for a number of reasons. Um, the, the first is that in many ways, Shaun is the shepherd of this little band of people who are sort of trying to find their way to the Winchester in order that they might be saved from the zombie apocalypse. And it was interesting to see how his role as the shepherd continued to grow, how it it started as one plan and then turned into another plan and turned into another plan and it just keeps turning into a new plan. And yet as it turns into a new plan, Sean learns new things about himself. And I was thinking about this particular Psalm and I may have mentioned this on the show before, but part of the reason I love Psalm 23 is that it, um, my friend Elaine pointed this out to me once. Um, it has a really interesting uh, poetic form, which is that you have this image of God as shepherd, God leading, and then you have this image of, um, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me, and so God is now not just leading, but beside. And then you have this moment at the very end of the psalm, and goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, that the, that the, the psalm itself 
as a poem has sort of like hemmed in the reader into understanding that like that the that God is in front, God is behind, and God is beside, and that the protection the sense of protection that the psalm is invoking is also inherent in the form and in the imagery as God is protecting whoever is vulnerable. And so I, I love that idea and I love the ways in which like they're seeking to find protection in various different places has continues to fail. And I wonder if we think about like all of the ways in which we seek to find protection and we seek to secure ourselves are actually, um, fairly insecure places. The the places we think are secure are generally the places we think are familiar. But familiarity and security are not the same thing. Right. And 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 the decision to go to the Winchester is a bad decision. Yeah. I mean I think and I think that's actually an important thing to recognize in this film is that it it, it is not trying to redeem this pub as a place of meaning. I, I think you see Sean and his group pass the other band of post-apocalyptic warriors and and Sean and his group go to the Winchester and they go off and find the military, right? They are in much better shape at the end of this movie than Sean and his band, most of whom don't survive. Um, that, that, that Winchester, which has been a place of familiarity and comfort, doesn't actually stand up as a place of security when when... In, in the third act. Well, in some ways too, it, because it's so familiar, they want to just do the things that they've always done. And so Ed starts playing the, uh, right. <laughs> the, 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 the slot machine basically. Right. Right. Um, which then alerts every, all of the zombies that they are in there. But this is, this is Ed's problem, right? Because Ed over and over again, just wants to like, Oh, I could do this now because the zombies are here. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the zombies are permission to do whatever it is Ed wanted to do to begin with, not knowing that the world has has fundamentally changed. I, and I think this is another way to think about these texts in relationship to Shaun of the Dead, which is I'm kind of fascinated by the person of Samuel and how he grows, who he turns into, you know, his his last and final act where he comes sort of as a ghost or zombie or however you want to sort of understand him when he gets raised by the Witch of Endor. Um, he he himself is always in service of somebody else. And he himself is a sort of shepherd, even though David is going to be called the shepherd. But he's he's trying to shepherd Israel into this new place of having a king, this new iteration of its identity and struggling to do so and having to find um, have to find help from God and and having his expectations about who God is going to use in order to initiate this new world constantly undermined. <laughs> and and I think there's something similar where that happens in this movie, which is like initially Ed and Sean think that they understand how the world works. Um, but slowly they realize that they're out at sea, that they, they're actually fully unequipped, not just for the zombie world, but for the world that they were living in. What about you? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the obvious low-hanging fruit here, although it's in the middle of a somewhat complex passage, is this line in the Ephesians reading 
where it's <laughs> talking about you once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Therefore, it says, sleep or awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Uh, and, and I think one of the interesting things in that moment is the the beginnings, the, the kind of ecclesiological, scriptural beginnings of the use of of death as a, as a metaphor for a, a certain way of um, being alive, but not fully um, mm -hmm. being alive, but not satisfactorily in discipleship, in Christ, in community, in love, whatever that, whatever that looks like. As we've said, this is a fairly uh, cloudy metaphor that you can poke in a lot of different directions. <laughs> um, but, you know, you were thinking about kind of our theology of zombieism. And, and I, you know, we're sitting here talking about this for Lent 4, and I, I think that's well and good. We're trying to have a, 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 a coronavirus-themed and timed show. But really, I think when we're talking about zombies and theology, we're in Eastertide. Because we're trying mm. to figure out what it means to be a people of resurrection. And, and to recognize that you know, the, the, the easy joke on Easter Sunday is that Jesus rises from the dead and Jesus becomes that, that we've got it's a story about zombie Jesus. But I think the truer thing, <laughs> right, the truer thing is to recognize the way in which we are all in some ways dead. Yeah, uh, that none of us are leading lives fully in God fully in grace, fully in community, fully in love, that fully in light. And that what Easter does is call us into new and full life and manifest for us what what that vision might look like. The, the best book on all of this that I have gone back to a, more times than not and more holy weeks than not is Brian Blunt's collection of essays and sermons on Eastertide text, which is called Invasion of the Dead. And mm -hmm. so uh, good. Blunt uses popular culture images around zombieism to talk about the the calls to to courage and the calls to to um to agency and the calls to discipleship that are built into these post resurrection accounts. I mean, just embedded in the question, why do you look for the living among the dead? is i think a hint that zombieism might ask us why is it that we can pass so easily for folks who are not fully alive why is it that our churches can pass so easily for churches that are not fully alive why is it that our cities and our communities can pass so easily for places that are not fully alive and how do we responding to the new life of jesus christ seek for ourselves to live fully into that light. I think that's what zombies do for me is ask yeah. me that crucial theological question. I think it shows up a bit in the John passage for th for this Lenten Sunday, mm -hmm. for this Lenten Sunday, which is the the man born blind uh, who clearly and, and and John clearly wants to contrast the physical blindness of this man who Jesus has just healed with the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees right. who are unwilling to see who Jesus is. And so what is, what is the worst defect, 
so to speak. I mean, and I, I, I use that language really loosely, but like, what is the worst handicap? Is it the, the, the physical impairment of not being able to use your eyes? But no, not anywhere near that. In this story, it is clearly the willful, um, the, the willful death of, of not being willing to be open to the fullness of God's life and represented here by Jesus's call. And I think that's the, that kind of willful death is, is where zombieism can help us think about living into our full selves. Yeah. And additionally to that, I think trying to figure out where our consumption part of this goes yeah. is fits into this, like and into our deathly practices. Right. I mean, if, if we are going to consume and consume and consume while also not planting, planting and planting, right? Like, that is there a is there a way to net like we have to we're going to consume that's part of who we are as human beings but i think part of the point of the zombie is that there is an insatiable consumption led by a stomach or an appetite that can never be sated mm-hmm. right which is antithetical i would say to the the message of the gospel which is right. you know all you are who are thirsty all you who are hungry you can actually sate your appetite here how do we, um, because you will always be hungry again. You are always going to be hungering for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it is going to kill you. And you are going to kill everything in your path in order to get what you think that you need. But what does living a life in Christ mean, except that you don't need to, you don't need to be led by your stomach. Uh, and, and, you know, like what does living among the dead often look like? It's figuring out how we can take without ever having to put back. I think that's a good place to stop with the scripture text for this week. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's a chance to get another little preacher thought on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So the one of the effects of coronavirus has been specifically here in Austin, where we don't have reported cases on the ground, but we did last Friday, uh, the city fully pulled the plug on the South by Southwest festival that is supposed to come up uh, when this episode airs and drops. And I've had a few folks ask me about what it means to try to support Austin in the wake of that cancellation, uh, which is a question I really appreciate because this is actually a very substantial economic issue in Austin. I mean, and it's an issue yeah. everywhere and I get that, but in, in the city of Austin, the South by Southwest festival brings in an almost unbelievable amount of revenue that, uh, in, you know, in some ways, of course, with any of that puts more money in the pockets of people who don't need more money, but in a lot of places it actually does sustain really vulnerable people. And mm-hmm. what I've been thinking about in the wake of that is this relationship between, in our community, p- people who are vulnerable and the things that make our community distinctive. And, and it's not a perfect overlap, but the truth is that in Austin downtown, there is there is a stretch of historic music venues and bars and um, restaurants that could not possibly survive globalism and gentrification and densification, except for two things. One is that they have historically protected status in some cases. 
and the other is because of South by Southwest that yeah. injects, you know, 40 to 50% of their annual income. And so that this part of our community that um, we think of locally as being really important to us, really valuable to us, that helps make Austin it may helps make Austin feel different than other places. It's one of the stories we tell ourselves about why this town is itself is also the, one of the places in our community that is most vulnerable, which is a very interesting correlation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, when I'm thinking about how to respond to folks that ask me, how can we support Austin? And there's a few different answers and there's some really basic ones. Like you can, you can go online and, order your next couple of pounds of coffee from some local Austin hipster coffee brewer, or you can go order a bunch of barbecue online from one of our local joints. There are a number of uh, Austin establishments that South by Southwest runs through substantially that have put some GoFundMes together to help support the service workers and the um, all the vendors that are really out on a limb from this. But what are the places that um, really are very meaningful to your community that also could be the first to go in the case of economic yeah. structural collapse. And I, I kind of want you to go there and spend some money. Uh, here in Austin, yeah. it looks like going to the bar and buying a round of drinks for the band, um, which is kind of what I'm committed to doing a few times next week in the absence of 500,000 outsiders. Um, <laughs> Go find a local music venue, um, buy around for the house. That's what I've got. Adam, what about you? I think that's really important. Thanks, Matt. I, um, I am learning about the joy and the sorrow of researching local history. Is you know, in in many ways, inspired by that article in the Century. I, I've had this moment when I was working in. Uh, in Boston, where we had invited this artist collective to come in and talk about some of the work that they do, especially with the advocacy work that they do. And the first thing that they asked us all is, do you know which who's, uh, which indigenous people were forced from their land in order for you to have it? Which had nothing to do with what they were ultimately going to talk about, but was the conversation that they began every one of their presentations with, just as a way to invoke those people who once lived um, on the place where we were living. And in our very progressive seminary community, this sort of landed like a ton of bricks because no one could name the, um, the American Indian tribe who had lived on the hill that we lived on. And, um, and I, I remember that really specifically in part because it, every place that I've gone since have given me an opportunity to research this sort of the, the, the colonial history, more or less, of of the area. And right now, I'm been reading um, books about the Lene Lenape tribe, which is a, the the large tribal system that basically ran from Maryland to New York in one form or another. Um, that settled large parts of um, what's now known as Philadelphia. And um, and I'm learning about the sort of William Penn and his dealings with this. But more than that, it's now beginning to unearth questions about like, where did the person who gave our church its land get that land? <laughs> and um, and I think that there's an impulse to just let 
sleeping dogs lie. And yet I'm also finding that there's being able to tell the story and tell it as truthfully as possible about where you, where you worship and who was here and who was worshiped here in one form or another in one particular system of, um, of belief or another is important to your history. And so trying to unearth this history can actually be quite exciting and revealing. On the other hand, it is also troubling and disturbing. And so I'm in just in the process of trying to do this, but I would encourage other people to start reading books about, um, about where their church, uh, about the history of the land upon which their church sits. And my hope is that that will spurn some deeper conversations about what a reaction to that history should be. Very cool. I think that's a good project for all of us. All right, folks, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, David Kill the Queen. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>